and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with and for global education leaders. Our aim, to introduce you to global changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. I'm your host, education reporter Jenny Anderson. In our first series, we're looking at how to reopen education settings in the wake of COVID-19. Our focus will be on how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Andrea Schleicher, head of the education division of the OECD. I've covered Andreas for many years as he's tried to focus the world's attention on the importance of reimagining education, his goal to make it meaningful and relevant to students, teachers, parents, and employers. His path, of course, is controversial and he is not without critics. As the face behind PISA, a test administered to 15-year-olds around the world every three years, many see him responsible for launching an education arms race. Others see him as a reformer, as he tries to change PISA to measure things like creative thinking and collaborative problem solving. You know, I expect that you will see many young people going back to their teachers saying, you know, well, in this crisis, I actually learned to manage my learning myself. I discovered so many interesting things on my own, you know, can't we do this in school? Today, Andreas and I talk about how different countries are trying to battle COVID-19 learning loss. His own research shows that during school closures, kids have learned about 40% of what they would have typically learned. We also talk about the elevated role of well-being in the pandemic, parents as faculty, where online learning has worked and not, the role of motivation and self-regulation, the future of assessment, and how tutoring could help the most disadvantaged kids catch up if designed and funded well. Andreas, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for hosting this, Jenny. I want to start by reading something that you said to me on March 20th. At the beginning of the crisis, we spoke, and you said, it's a great moment for learning. All the red tape that keeps things away is gone, and people are looking for solutions that in the past they did not want to see. Do you still have this optimism and enthusiasm that as we move forward, the momentum for positive change will continue. Yes, I do. I think actually we have seen enormous momentum and development over the last uh, couple of months in so many countries, in so many schools around the world. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the reopening plans uh, of countries, uh, most of them include a fair amount of blended learning, a fair amount of innovation in learning environments. I think really this has been a big push, but I think one has to be quite conscious. It's work for some no, students who have the motivation, the parental support, uh, the access to the right technologies. Uh, for them, this has been liberating and exciting, but uh, for students uh, who had, you know, used to be spoon-fed by their teachers who, uh, you know, don't have the parental support, who may not have the intrinsic motivation to see the value in schooling, uh, they have been left further behind. So I think that's the reality of this as well. That's worked for some, but not for all. Let's talk a little bit about that because the evidence of learning loss is starting to emerge and it's quite profound. Reports in the U.S. citing seven to nine months to a year. Uh, the Educational Endowment Foundation said school closures are likely to reverse progress made in equity since 2001. What happens now to deal with this tremendous learning loss? Yeah, you know, first of all, there is a clear uh, learning loss. Uh, you can expect maybe, you know, 40% of what has been typically learned 
being conveyed in this period of school closures. Now, that's the number that we got from our our survey. Uh, and that's sort of traditional learning outcomes. What we should not totally discount is uh, the learning that has gone on that we do not capture in those kinds of metrics. Uh, think about, you know, students having, you know, to set their own learning goals, to monitor their own learning process, to develop resilience, to uh, lose fear of failure. Uh, and I think that is very important that we do not just look at what we lose, that we also look at, you know, what can we learn from this crisis? But absolutely, there has been significant learning loss and uh, uh, but many countries also are establishing strategies for making up for this. You can see a lot of plans for summer courses. You can see a lot of programs for evening courses. Some school systems are giving privileged access to schooling to students from disadvantaged families. And again, you know, a, a way to mediate uh, disparities. I think what encourages me most is that this is on the radar screen. I think the kind of learning gap is on everybody's mind and you can see true efforts being made also in terms of better teacher support. You know, that's the other side of the equation. Teachers have made an extraordinary effort to cope with difficulties they were never uh, prepared for. And also there's a lot of counseling going into this, mentoring. Uh, what uh, is a little bit more worrying that we do not see extra resources. So I think that's a big challenge for students, for teachers, for schools to manage all of this within a kind of zero-sum envelope. So I just want to push back a little bit on that because I see exactly why you're optimistic because we have seen a sort of wave of innovation in the face of necessity. But if we have these huge learning losses and we have these huge mental health challenges, might there not be a push to just go back to what we know? What makes you confident that we push ahead of that? Yeah, no, I think that uh, that is a clear possibility. You know, if you have only a limited amount of learning time, there is a clear kind of inclination to focus on, you know, building foundations. It's about literacy, it's about numeracy, it's about preparing young people for the exam. But at the very same time, you know, I expect that you will see many young people going back to their teachers saying, you know, well, in this crisis, I actually learned to manage my learning myself. I discovered so many interesting things on my own, you know, can't we do this in school? And I think teachers will be looking to this. I also expect many teachers who have discovered entirely new forms of, you know, instruction, of engaging with their students, who have discovered, well, now that I don't have all these students sitting in front of me, I really need to work hard to relate to them. I need to work hard to think about, you know, what motivates them, what are their passions, their dreams, how I can support them. And uh, so I think there are many forces at play. There is, you know, the reality of social distancing, the reality of constrained curriculum time that pushes us back to the past. But there is also, I think, a lot of energy that uh, will get people to think twice and maybe we can combine uh, the two worlds in some ways, you know, maybe the kind of more traditional learning in school, teacher-directed learning as part of social distancing can serve some purposes and we will find other ways, you know, through technologies to serve the latter. Some schools in this crisis quickly got from core academics, lots of academics, lots of online academics to more social emotional learning, to more well-being. And as things progressed, the balance shifted. There was more of a focus on well-being to keep kids engaged. I'm curious whether that's what you saw. 
uh, or heard from the school leaders and ministers you've talked to and whether you think that will stick? You know, we surveyed countries on this and uh, academic learning comes out clearly as number one as the main concern and you can understand that. But I was actually uh, quite surprised and encouraged how closely this was followed by social emotional outcomes of learning, by student well-being, by teacher well-being. I think people realizing that if you want to actually motivate people to learn on their own, uh, you need to provide an environment for this. You need to rely more on the intrinsic motivation than on the extrinsic forces. And uh, so in a sense, I think we've seen quite balanced goals in education, to what extent they are supported by policy and practice that remains to be seen. You have uh, countries where this has been a long-standing focus, where this is being reinforced. Uh, think about Finland, think about Denmark, but also countries like uh, Japan, Korea, that have devoted very significant efforts actually to enhance uh, uh, student uh, well-being and uh, a broad kind of uh, skills and competences they seek to foster. So I think actually yeah, countries, this has been reinforced, but also countries where this has been quite newly introduced into the mix of learning outcomes. So this could potentially benefit that agenda, for lack of a better word, the sort of broader, more holistic look at education, not just a Gaokao, not just an SAT, not just an A-level, but a fuller picture of the student. Yeah, you know, I think this this is what this crisis really has, has shown, that in the moment, you cannot rely on the kind of institutional setup for learning, where learning is no longer a place, but really becomes an activity. You need to foster the kind of individual attributes that, you know, strengthen that activity. And that is about resilience. That is about, you know, setting your own learning goals, monitoring your own learning process, about self-awareness. It's about developing a genuine interest in the matter of what you're learning. You know, if we would spend a little bit more effort and time to give students themselves a deeper understanding of what they're learning, how and why, and what's the sequencing of it, you would see different learning outcomes. You know, we all learn much better if you have a deeper understanding of that learning process rather than if you're just confronted with one wave after wave with new facts. And that potentially, I think what I hear you saying is that COVID has given us an opportunity to see that more clearly than we did before. Yeah, you know, I, I think the reality is uh, home learning only succeeds under those conditions. You know, if you're teaching a class. If you're standing in front of 20 students, they all sit in front of you. They all, they all look like present. The moment they are in their home, suddenly as a teacher, you have to reach them. You understand that learning is not a transactional phenomenon. It's actually a relational phenomenon. If you cannot you know, uh, you know, understand who your students are and how they learn differently in this period of home learning, you're on your own. And I think that's what I think teachers have really seen in this moment, that simply having students sit in front of you doesn't mean that they are actually present and aware and, and engaged in the learning. So you could delude yourself if they're sitting in front of you that you're engaging them, even though you may well not have been. But once they're behind a screen, you can no longer continue with that delusion. You have to engage with that student. And the only way to do that is, this is what I'm hearing you say, is by having a relationship with that student and understanding their own learning processes. Exactly. So the OECD has, via PISA, has been experimenting with different metrics of what attainment and success look like, creativity, uh, collaborative problem solving. Do you see COVID adding momentum to those efforts or detracting from them? I think it's adding a lot. Like we are actually working at this moment on a special COVID module to better capture 
the learning processes and attitudes and experiences of young people during the COVID crisis. I think that's a clear, clear effort, and uh, I think it all of this redoubles our our efforts to be ready for tomorrow's world. You know, I think uh, our education systems have become very good at educating second-class robots. You know, people are very good to repeat what you tell them. And I think in this moment, uh, and this is not just a COVID crisis, but I think if you look at the capacities of artificial intelligence, we need to think harder what complements, not substitute those kinds of, of forces. And I think there's a lot of thought in PISA going into this and this COVID crisis, I think, amplifies and reinforces that. Are there particular measures you'd like to see adopted more broadly? Yeah, one in which we are on which we are working now, and beyond, you know, the work on creative thinking and the collaborative problem solving that you cited, uh, we are working on learning in the digital world, which is not so much about technology; it's more about, you know, how is this digital world really different in the style and nature of learning that occurs? And I think that's something that we try to cover in the 24 assessment. I think it's a really, really interesting kind of phenomenon. We also are trying to do more with our assessment of global competences. To what extent can you uh, appreciate different ways of thinking, different ways of working, uh, different cultures? I do think uh, this is also, I think, something that we need to pay more attention to in this interconnected world. You've done your own report, Schooling Disrupted, Schooling Rethought. What surprised you about the conclusions of that survey? Many things were not so much surprising, but the one element that really surprised and encouraged me was the strong collaborative spirit with which most countries are approaching this. If you think about, you know, we surveyed government officials, we surveyed teachers, administrators, and basically everybody, nine out of 10 people said, Everybody did their best in this crisis. You know, if we had this in normal in peace times, we would have different school systems. Uh, most people said this was not top down. There was actually a lot of involvement on the parts of schools, on the parts of parents. So I think the collaborative nature that we have seen making education more of whole of society enterprise rather than a government business. I think it's been a biggest surprise to me. I don't know to what extent that is, you know, actually reflected uh, on the front line, you know, sometimes the responses from teachers diverge from those of others. But uh, overall, that's been, I think, for me, the biggest takeaway. So that caught my eye as well. And I pulled out some numbers. 75% of respondents said that uh, reopening was collaborative and done with teachers. 65% said that communication was good. Only 25% of people said, uh, respondents said that they consulted with parents. Did that number surprise you? Should this moment be pushing a different relationship between parents and schools? Well, again, there's an opportunity for this. Uh, it has been probably the first time that parents discovered what education is really about and what teachers do. You know, you struggle with one child at home and you can suddenly imagine what a teacher does with 25 and 30. So I think we have an opportunity to get parents more engaged, more interested in education. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent that opportunity has been fully utilized. Basically, uh, in two months of this crisis, you, we, there were, we're probably not the kind of communication channels and devices to really engage parents. But I, I see that as a future potential. I do think there's a much broader understanding of parents as a better kind of interest and engagement. Um, and I think we could be utilizing this more to make this not just a supply-driven 
experience, but to listen more to the needs and interests of, of parents. So I think there is probably more potential, but uh, the numbers did not surprise me that much because think about, you know, what would it take to reach out to parents and how can you do this in the very short time that was available? It would be unrealistic to expect to happen in the short term. But again, in the medium and long term, I think there is a lot that we can do to better draw on the parents. You know, what if you are a teacher and you can rely on the 50 parents uh, behind you? You know, you could do very different things probably. There was a great tweet sort of one day after lockdown, Shonda Rhimes in the U.S., been homeschooling a six-year-old and eight-year-old for one hour and 11 minutes. Teachers deserve to make a billion dollars a week. <laughs> so I think that's evidence that we are seeing that perhaps parents are getting a much better sense as to what challenges teachers face. Parents have seen into the black box of schooling and, you know, what they do with that is, is anyone's guess. I'd love to talk just briefly about changes in the sort of curriculum assessment arena. I kept hearing from school leaders that with regards to curriculum, less is more. We have to do less because that's what digital learning can support. Is, is that a positive change and do you expect to see that? You know, that's the secret of most high-performing education systems. They teach fewer things at much greater depths. You know, the, if you look at the United States, this kind of mile-wide inch deep approach to learning, even before this corona crisis, has been one of the biggest problems that leads to these very shallow outcomes that we then see. Now, I think, but this crisis has pushed us to think harder about it because there's been less time available. And actually where education systems did not make those decisions about prioritizing curriculum content, you push that too on the shoulders of you know, teachers and school. Uh, and then you know, you have teachers making inconsistent decisions about this. So I think um, this crisis has clearly amplified this, but I see this as a general need in education. Uh, you know, uh, what you know in biology and physics is important, but can you think like a scientist? Like, can you design an experiment? Can you distinguish questions that are scientifically investigable from those that are not? That's often shortchanged in education. We need to build stronger foundations for the academic disciplines. And then, you know, if students can, you know, think like a, you know, philosopher, think like a scientist, uh, think like an historian, then they will also be able to master new knowledge throughout their lives. So I think teaching fewer things at greater depths is it's very difficult to do. You know, all of society pushes you to the opposite. You know, every day we push something more on schools. Today it's, you know, digital literacy. Tomorrow it's health literacy. Then comes financial literacy. Then comes environmental literacy. Now, everybody wants to add something. Nobody wants to subtract something. Now, you get very nervous when your children no longer learn what, was very important to you in school. You know, suddenly your know, schooling declined. So that's the tendency in education system. But I think a good system has the capacity and the intellectual maturity to resist that and actually to prioritize what is really, really important at what age. What are you seeing with assessment and do you sense any change with how schools and school systems will use it? You know, I believe that assessment is very, very important. I think we will not improve learning if we can't make learning visible. Uh, what I hope the future will bring is that we will be able to integrate assessment and learning much more closely. At the moment, we add assessment onto the learning process. It takes time away from learning, or it is seen to be taking time away. It is seen to you know, narrow uh, learning. In the future, I think by making it a much more integral part, it will you know, help students learn better, teachers teach better, and, and, and schools 
to become more effective. And this is, I think, where the power of technology really lies. It doesn't lie necessarily just in students playing with tablets when they you know, solve problems. The power of technology lies in really diagnosing how different students learn differently and building data pattern out of this and helping teachers through data analytics understand those learning processes and tailorize uh, learning material and, and uh, pedagogy. So I think uh, the future of assessment probably will be invisible. We will not, you know, do a point at some point in testing, but we will have a constant stream of knowledge about how students learn and how they learn differently. And does that change the multiple high stakes exams that exist? If you have all that data, do you need the high stakes exams? Well, you know, eventually, yes. I, for me, that's going to be a gradual transition. The more data on the learning process uh, we have, uh, the less we, we need to rely on on external points of observation. But this, you know, it's always be about a trade-off between efficiency and assessment and validity and assessment and relevance and reliability. Now, if you want to be absolutely sure that you compare you know, uh, results, you you end up with a kind of narrow, high stakes, one point in time assessment. Uh, but, you know, maybe in the future, we become uh, more willing to give up maybe a little bit in reliability to have a much greater sense of relevance and to prioritize validity over the efficiency of the process. So I think, uh, for me, I think the worst mistake we could make is, you know, just abandon assessment and start start from scratch. For me, this is sort of the more we strengthen uh, alternative forms of assessment, the less we will need to rely on, on the end-of-year high-stakes gateways. Did this moment give us more comfort with the tools to do that? Yeah, you know, I, I have seen a lot of progress on, on learning tech technology in the crisis, I have not seen that much change in the kind of assessment world. You know, I think that's probably take going to take more time. But there are clearly countries much further advanced than others. You know, if you look at the use of artificial intelligence in teaching and learning, you know, uh, systems like China, they are, you know, probably a decade ahead. And what is very important is that uh, this is not a matter for the technology industry. This is really where you need teachers at the heart of the design of those instruments. This is not uh, going to work if this is, you know, you know, tech tools coming to schools. I do believe that we need teachers to spend more of their time as researchers, as designers of innovative pedagogies and as assessment policies and practices. And I think when that starts to happen, uh, you will see change. But this is not something I've seen in this crisis, honestly. Quickly, let's talk about budgets, because this is obviously very concerning for many people. This started as coronavirus, started as a health crisis, quickly morphed to an economic crisis and an employment one. Is the next one an education crisis as budgets get slashed and uh, we're facing these massive learning losses, mental health concerns, teacher well-being issues with less you know, there's clearly a risk. Uh, at the same time, if you think back to the financial crisis in 2008, actually, remarkably, education suffered least. I think most countries realized that our schools today is going to be our economy tomorrow. And actually, education budget have uh, mastered that crisis quite well. You know, I don't know to what extent this will hold uh, for the future, but I, I, I do believe in a moment where 
you're, I mean, I think about, you know, a country like Finland, the moment it rebuilt its education system was when in the deep economic crisis. I mean, that's the moment when people think, you know, what is our future going to be looking like? There are plans actually in some cases to augment resources, to fund additional, you know, uh, you know, shifts in school, to fund extra learning and so on. I think there's a little bit of additional resources. So I'm optimistic that education will remain a priority. At the very same time, I do believe that it's time for education to think more carefully how we can reconfigure, you know, the people, the time, the spaces, the technologies in education to do things differently. Even if money is constant, the future will require to do a lot more with not much more money. So I think we cannot get around thinking about doing things differently. Let me ask you about the role of tutoring quickly, because the UK is one country, and I'm sure there will be others, that to close those learning gaps, they will roll out one-on-one online tutoring to the most disadvantaged students. Is that a good idea? Do we have evidence that that can work? And are you seeing that anywhere else? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think if you look to countries in East Asia, like, you know, Korea, Japan, China, it's a lot of uh, tutoring going on, and it can be very effective. You know, Actually, I think the way it is organized in those countries, it's a, it's a very systematic process, very predictable. You can rely on, on quality, which I wouldn't say in Europe. You know, I think in Europe, it depends. Often you get a, a graduate student teaching your son and daughter. So I think you need to invest in the infrastructure for this. You need to you know, make sure that it is of high quality, that it's also not just, you know, just exam preparation, but real learning. And then, yes, I think that can be a very, very effective way to complement learning in school. In one way, you know, we should see this as an integral part of the education system. I mean, we have this idea often that learning is only, you know, a one-size-fits-all process. You have students uh, behind the desk and teacher in front of them. That's just one way of learning. I think, you know, maybe even in the school, we could have larger classes if it's combined with individual tutoring to help, you know, students address specific learning gaps or develop specific talents. Uh, online learning, blended learning. I think we need to look at much, uh, many more forms of learning and combine them in the way that they serve purposes best. When it comes to effectiveness, you know, why are the East Asian countries doing so much better on equity? not just in the COVID crisis, but also well before that. It is because they realize that students learn differently and to support them in a multitude of ways of which, you know, tutoring is an important element. It's so interesting when you say that, because I think of tutoring as a tool of inequity. I think of tutoring in a Western context of rich parents use it for SAT prep, for exam prep. And that is why SAT scores correlate with income and not with academic ability. So it's interesting. I think you're saying something very different, which is you have seen evidence in Asian countries that tutoring can be a tool for equity. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, we need to understand how different students learn differently and then tailor different forms of education provision to their needs. So the moment you make tutoring part of the education system, you run much less into this problem of inequality than if it's uh, an add-on that parents buy into. And just so I understand what you mean, when you say make tutoring part of the system rather than a sort of add-on by parents, that means that it's funded by the government. Well, well, you'll be surprised. Actually, the 
private tutoring at a decent quality in Asia is quite affordable. So I don't think it pre prevents people from, from accessing. It's still paid by, by, by families and households, but it's affordable because it's well organized, it's scaled. Uh, the kind of cost structures that you have in, in Europe and the Western world are much more dubious. You know, where a lot of money is being made out of this, a very patchy provision, no quality assurance, no supervision. Uh, that's what worries me much more than the kind of very organized approaches that we see in those countries where you do have basically a, a system that adds on onto schooling. I mean, again, you know, my preference would be that we would see this really becoming a fully integral part of the education system, you know, uh, like, you know, included in the funding, included in the structures that they don't have these parallel worlds. But as long as that doesn't exist, I think um, we can learn a lot from those countries that have uh, organized that form uh, rather than just leaving it uh, to a private market. Right. But you're saying it is the private market in the Asian countries that is yeah. running it, but somehow it's affordable. I mean, if it's the private market running it here, how do you force it to be affordable? Well, you can regulate it, you know, like we regulate many services. I, I'm not minding the private provision. What I mind is really this kind of wild kind of unregulated structures that actually are under the surface, you know, not often even in financial terms, not often well captured. And I think the more uh, government can do to ensure that every child has access to the right forms of learning, including private uh, tutoring, um, I think the better. And the financial barriers are manageable. That's exactly what we can see from the East Asian cases. It's the, the, the provision. You know, if you are from a, you know, a background, uh, you know, where parents do not have that high level of education, finding your way through the system in Europe, you know, finding the right private tutoring is already a very, very difficult task. So I think the more we can help uh, parents to rely on on the quality of the system. In, in a way, you know, we present things as equitable, you know, school choice and all of those things. But we put yeah, put families into very difficult situations, making the right choices. You know, if you if you go to high performing education systems, the closest school tends to be the best school. And uh, if you do not have, you know, enough provision at school. There are other ways to complement it. So you can rely more on the quality of the service rather than having to make too many difficult choices on your own as a family. From your report, um, Schooling Disrupted, Schooling Rethought, you had quite a few points around how to reopen well. Which would you pick? Well, I think the first one is you cannot un you cannot overinvest in frontline capacity. I think what this crisis really shows is you need to have a lot of leadership capacity in the system. Uh, the government can help you, but at the end of the day, you stand in front of the parents. You have to make difficult decisions. And in the future, you know, in this first wave of the crisis, uh, we closed schools across the board. That was easy. In the second wave of crisis, you know, those decisions will be mostly made in schools. There will be, you know, closures of classrooms. There will be, you know, quarantine of students and teachers. There will be, you know, health regulations and social distancing that you as a leader in a school need to put into place and uh, build trust in the community for, you know. Uh, I think the investing in, in that frontline capacity is sort of really, really crucial. Does frontline capacity mean school leadership? Is that, is that 
School leadership, teacher leadership, you know, as a school leadership in this moment, don't ask yourself how many, you know, of your teachers follow your ideas and recommendations. Ask yourself how well your teachers can collaborate, how well your teachers can actually take on responsibility to make those decisions. Uh, this is the moment where you really need frontline capacity. You need leadership at every level. You need teachers who can convince parents that, you know, this is a safe environment where your child can, can return. Government bureaucracies will not do this job. You know, this worked in the first wave because it was just implemented in a very mechanical. In the in the future, you know, that's going to be a very, very hard. But would I be right in interpreting that is also invest in relationships, strengthening the relationship between the leadership of the school and the teachers and the teachers and the parents? Yeah, you know, everything in education is about relationship. You know, we've too often we think this is about transaction. Yeah, and we have, uh, in a way, in the last 20 years, seen what I think has been an unhealthy trend towards commodifying education. You know, basically, you have uh, students who are consumers, you have parents who are clients, you have teachers who become service providers, and that has created the distance between people. And we're now paying a price for that distance. I think in the future, you, we should probably invest a lot more to make school again the center of the community, a whole of society enterprise that relies on, you know, the engagement of parents, that relies on the extraordinary motivation of teachers, but that gives all of those stakeholders also place uh, to play their role. The kind of tailorization of work organization in schools, you know, where we have a, a teacher, then a psychologist, a social worker, everybody does their little function in a big bureaucracy. That system doesn't work in a moment like this, where you need people to take responsibility. You know, you need teachers who stand up in front of parents and say, this is the right thing and this is why. And they, their professional autonomy doesn't mean, you know, I do what I like to do, but I do what I know is right in the name of my profession. So I think that's something, you know, making this more of a relational experience, I think is crucially important. And I definitely think that's what we've seen. I mean, my reporting has definitely led me to, I wish government ministers would pay attention to how much teachers stood up and got it done against all odds, right? Found their students. I'm sure, you know, not all, not all teachers and certainly not all students, but the remarkable capacity to figure it out without a lot of guidance because they were committed to doing it and to their kids, lend some credence to the idea that let's maybe stop with this accountability system and focus more on trusting teachers to know what their students need. Just on this question of accountability, this not, is not about more or less accountability. I think it's moving from vertical accountability system where you just push information upwards to lateral accountability systems where you are accountable to your peers and what was your peers. Actually, on individuals, that can be a lot tougher than the kind of administrative accountability. No? That's a good clarifying point. Thank you. All right. What is your favorite book or podcast on learning? And you're not allowed to cite PISA. <laughs> uh, I, I must say, um, uh, I, I've taken a lot from the book of Ferrari, the um, one lesson for the 21st century for education. You know, I think that's been a big inspiration for me to think about, you know, what education should be like, but it's not about learning directly. And my last question is, uh, what was your favorite lockdown activity? Um, I've done some sports, you know, I've done more than I usually do. I went jogging and as far as it was possible, it was difficult at some period during the lockdown, but uh, that was something I tried to 
balance a little bit. You know, you spend the whole time on the screen and um, from early in the morning to late at night. But I think that's the one thing I really enjoyed. Thank you so much for your time. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. A few things struck me about this conversation. One is that the learning gap is on everybody's mind right now. And that's a good thing because while COVID-19 didn't create it, it certainly made it worse. The other was how much COVID has revealed about the importance of well-being and of the relationships between students and teachers. He said, if you can't understand who your students are and how they are learning differently in this period of home learning, they're on their own. And finally, I was struck by the idea of using tutoring to advance equity. I always think of tutoring as a tool the rich uses to keep their kids ahead. But Schleicher is suggesting something radically different as a way to level the playing field. I don't know if it will work, but it's certainly worth mulling. Thanks for listening, and until next time. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.